You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. So after a day of violence and chaos, legislators in Washington have been continuing to debate the outcome of the presidential election. Earlier, mobs of enraged Donald Trump supporters broke windows and stormed Congress in support of his false claims that the election was stolen. The president-elect Joe Biden denounced the violence, calling it insurrection. Mr. Trump, who had earlier urged his followers to go to the Capitol building, asked them to go home, but also repeated his allegations of electoral fraud and told the rioters that he loved them. Four people died in the mayhem, 52 were arrested. Here's a sense of what happened. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down, we're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women and we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. We're seeing hundreds of people standing on the steps of the Capitol. It's a it's a historic sight, really. So photographers out there are having uh, are taking many historic shots today. We really don't know who is behind this. I guess you could call these, uh, for lack of a better word, Antifa-like tactics. We don't know if Antifa is out there. To those who wreaked havoc in our Capitol today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins, and this is still the people's house. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition, and it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. Donald Trump, let's return now to our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. Brian, will you bring us through what happened yesterday? So as we've been discussing, it was all about this formal process of counting the Electoral College votes in order to ratify Joe Biden's victory. Big crowds of Trump supporters outside the Capitol building. We knew there was going to be big protests there outside, but then chaos ensued. They started pushing through the barriers. They started breaking through windows and doors. They got past security. We saw these bizarre images then of them wandering through these chambers, wandering through the halls of Congress, sitting in chairs, going into the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's office, vandalizing her office, ripping things off the wall, people taking selfies next to statues and flags. And then we saw the scenes of violence. We had security officers barricading doors with furniture. We had members of Congress 
hiding under desks, hiding under chairs. Shots were fired. A woman was shot and killed. Three other people died from what authorities described as medical emergencies. Absolute scenes of chaos, unprecedented scenes that we'd never seen before. What was very important, I think, what was very significant, is that after about three hours, when the protesters were cleared and the surrounding area had been secured, Congress resumed and they went back to their business of counting those Electoral College votes. I think that was very important for them to send out this message that you will not trample on our democracy and that the violent mob that invaded the Capitol building would not stop that process. And that process is moving along in the last few minutes, there has been a vote that has rejected objections to Pennsylvania's election results. It's nearing the end of the process. But this, remember, should have been a simple rubber stamping exercise. The counting of the Electoral College votes isn't this big deal, but it will be forever remembered now as this day of chaos and this day of violence on Capitol Hill. Mm, I was watching it, Brian, and it is in many ways surreal. They're continuing this process now throughout the night. Yeah, so they've continued. So the process works like this. They go through them alphabetically, each state. And as you call out a state, you call out who won the state. And in the cases of these contentious states, it started with Arizona earlier. We had Pennsylvania a little while ago. You're going to have Republicans objecting. Interestingly, the number of Republicans who originally said they would object reduced after these violent mobs came in. Some of the Republicans said, OK, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to be objecting anymore. Let's just get on with this process, given what had happened. Many more, however, still stuck to their guns and lodged these quite silly objections frankly, because they were never going to succeed. They didn't have the votes, but when you lodge an objection, it delays the process. It sparks a debate. But another big question that has been sparked here, of course, is the level of security at the Capitol building and how this was allowed to happen. This should have been one of the most secure buildings in the world, one would have thought. But what we saw yesterday was, in some cases, these mobs seemed to almost just wander through. There was a bit of pushing and shoving at the start, but then many more of them got through. There were these bizarre scenes of them taking selfies with security staff, security staff at times seeming to stand back. Many people here contrasting that with what we saw with the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, where there were scenes of very heavy handedness from authorities, tear gas used, pepper spray, projectiles fired. We didn't see a lot of that yesterday. It took a long time to clear those protesters from the Capitol. Mm, In one way, the protest is now over. But in another, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite numerous legal challenges being rejected, there are still many people who remain convinced that Donald Trump won the election and they're unlikely to change their mind. Absolutely. And remember, Donald Trump got a massive vote in this election. 74 million people voted for him. He still has this huge support base. And as you said, yes, a huge percentage of that support base believes him when he says that this was stolen, that this was fraud. Surveys have been done. Polling has been done. And there is a high level of belief out there that there was fraud and that there was theft here. I've been covering his Stop the Steal marches and his rallies several days now. These have been going on. And every time you speak to these people, they are utterly convinced. And when you say to them that there is no evidence, that the Attorney General says no fraud, the courts have said no fraud, they will come up with another conspiracy theory and they'll say that everybody is lying and it is the mainstream media putting a spin on this. The only person putting the spin on this is Donald Trump. 
They are listening to him. They are listening to every word he says. And he is under huge pressure now over what happened yesterday. We saw Democrats and Republicans alike criticizing him over this, saying he is the one that incited that violence. He told them to march to the Capitol building. He even said, I'll march with you, which he was never going to do. And he told them to be strong and he told them to fight and he told them to take back their country. Big question marks now over what's going to happen to him in his final two weeks in office. That's all that's left in the Donald Trump term. Even talk of would there be this enactment of the 25th Amendment, which would see members of his cabinet rise up effectively and rule him unfit for office and remove him from office. Some speculation that there's been some talk of that in the background. Certainly his opponents are calling for something to be done to him to prevent him from doing anything else like this in his remaining two weeks. Brian, extraordinary times. Thank you so much for joining us again this morning. And as you've been hearing, a Malaysian coroner has ruled that the deaths of Irish teenager Nora Quarren while on a family holiday in 2019 was by misadventure. The 15-year-old, you remember, disappeared from a rainforest resort in the country in August of that year. She was missing for 10 days before her body was discovered two kilometres from the resort. The BBC's Howard Johnson, who covered Nora's disappearance and the subsequent inquest, has been recalling for me what happened. Back in August of 2019, the Corrin family arrived in Malaysia for a holiday. And on August the 3rd, they checked into this Dusan resort, this uh, luxury resort in the jungle area just south of Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia. Now, the next morning when the father, Sebastian, went upstairs to check on Nora's bed, it was empty apart from her sister who'd been sleeping next to her. And that triggered a massive manhunt for Nora. Uh, This lasted some 10 days before they found her body lying on a palm oil plantation next to a stream. uh, And it was discovered by hikers, uh, volunteer hikers, despite there being uh, hundreds of other search and rescue uh, staff looking for her. It was eventually discovered uh, by a team that had volunteered. Now, this triggered uh, a uh, forensic uh, autopsy. Uh, A pathologist came from Kuala Lumpur to conduct that. And he, at the time, uh, said that this death was resulted to Uh, had resulted in the fact that she had um, had ulcers, uh, massive ulceration in her upper intestine that caused internal bleeding. And he believed that was caused by stress and lack of food. But her family, Howard, always believed that she'd been abducted and they pressed for an inquest. Why do they believe this? That's correct. They always said that the evidence of the window that was left open, they said that they closed it the night she went missing. The next morning it was open. One of the police officers during the inquest said it was wide enough uh, for an adult to fit through. Uh, Fingerprints were taken, uh, but there was no sign that Nora's uh, prints were taken from that. But uh, during the inquest, they also said that it was very impossible, uh, very unlikely Uh, that she would have wandered off alone. She had never walked off alone uh, by herself. We heard from her head teacher of her school in southwest London in Balham, who said that she had this uh, lack of balance. She had difficulties walking. Uh, Today, during the summary, during the conclusion, the coroner actually showed a video of Nora uh, dragging a suitcase on a walking, rum, uh, walking, uh, moving uh, walkway in an airport uh, on the day she arrived which uh, obviously contradicted what the family had said. But the coroner said that she had made the decision 
based on the evidence that had been presented to her. She said that she wasn't going to uh, look into speculation uh, or theories that had been banded around. She said that she made this decision, and on the balance of probabilities, she ruled out foul play, and she believed that this was simply a case of misadventure and that Nora had wandered off alone. The family had pressed for this inquest. Has there been any reaction to the coroner's ruling? Yeah, the family are disappointed with this ruling. They've said many times that they were looking for an open verdict. Uh, that would have left open the possibility of a criminal investigation. But at the moment, the case is closed. However, that doesn't mean that it just ends here. What is now available to them is to look to uh, send the case for a potential revision at the High Court of Seremban in the area where uh, she went missing. And if that happens, then potentially uh, they could uh, reopen the case. But that would really have to come about if there was compelling evidence that showed that there was a criminal element to the case. At the moment, they had struggled to find that. But we also can see that in 2019, there was a precedent of a case being overturned, of a model, an 18-year-old, who died at the time the coroner in Malaysia said it was misadventure. But that was eventually overturned and a criminal investigation had uh, been opened up subsequently. Uh, That has not concluded, but it it goes to show that this case could be overturned if the High Court in Seremban decided there was enough evidence to reopen the case. The BBC's Howard Johnson. The rollout of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine has been underway since last week here, but how is it going? Yesterday, the first nursing home resident in the country received a vaccination and staff at Tala Hospital queued to receive theirs. Our reporter, Joan O'Sullivan, has been speaking to some of those who have already been vaccinated and finding out just how quickly or slowly this rollout is progressing really exciting. I was delighted to be asked to be involved and delighted to get the vaccine today. Louise Power, a nurse at Tala University Hospital, was the first member of staff to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine at the hospital yesterday. She said she felt lucky to receive it and believes it proves that better times lie ahead. It has been a really long few months, um, especially for those of us in healthcare. And just to see some light at the end of the tunnel, it feels like 2021 is going to be a better year once we can get this out and going. Lucy Nugent is the chief executive of the hospital and says the vaccination programme is being run like a military operation. Okay, well, we took um, delivery of 975 vaccines this morning and we have another delivery scheduled for the end of the week. So by Saturday evening, we will have 1,950 of our staff vaccinated and hopefully we'll actually have all of our staff vaccinated by the end of two weeks. Did anybody say, listen, I, I, I prefer not to get the vaccine? Yes, they have. Um, I, I had a conversation with a member of staff actually on, on the corridor where all good conversations happen uh, only yesterday. And they expressed concern. Paul Reid has said it is not mandatory for healthcare workers. And some people have very genuine reasons why they, they can't uh, receive the vaccine. So far, that's one individual. Um, basically, there has been a stampede to book in for um, their appointments for their vaccination. I have never seen so many happy staff queuing for their vaccination today because it's a new dawn. It's fantastic progress. Meanwhile, the residents of Hollybrook Lodge have also begun receiving their vaccinations. The lodge is managed by St. James's Hospital. Professor Roseanne Kenny is the director of the Mercer's Institute there. It was quite remarkable, almost overwhelming joy 
from the patients and from the staff. They really embraced the possibility of vaccination and, and the possibilities that it would enable once they were fully immunized with the dual vaccinations in terms of engaging, less, less social isolation, visitations, etc. It's, it's opening wonderful opportunities for people who have been so curtailed and isolated for such a long period of time. So you're the first in the country then? That's right, absolutely. And the, the, the patient who was first in long-term care to receive vaccination was obviously in her mid-90s. Um, and unfortunately, she had had previously had had COVID and recovered from COVID. So she was very keen to, to have the vaccination. Um, she uh, unfortunately lost her, her husband of many, many decades due to COVID earlier on in the, in the crisis. So this is a big, big occasion for that patient. And you said she was overjoyed to get this vaccine today. She was, and the staff were, knowing the whole circumstances, etc. It was a very, it was actually really a joyous occasion, a joyous day. Last week, around 4,000 people received vaccinations. As the rollout to nursing homes begins, it's estimated that 35,000 will receive the jab by the end of this week. Health authorities say 135,000 people should be vaccinated by the end of February. There has been criticism that the rollout has been too slow. But Irish Times health editor Paul Cullen says there are factors at play that are outside our control. It's very early days so far. and It's only by the end of this year that we'll know whether our vaccination programme has worked. Obviously, some countries like Israel and the UK have been faster to get people vaccinated, and we seem to be rather slow at this stage. Um, we are constrained by a number of issues, some of them in our control, but a lot of them outside our control. The first is we're a member of the EU and the EU regulatory bodies. The European Medicines Agency has so far only uh, authorised one vaccine. So we're waiting for a second decision from the, the EMA, possibly on Wednesday, about a second vaccine. The second thing is about getting supplies to the country. So at the moment, we're riding just one horse, and that's Pfizer-BioNTech. And there are limited supplies of that vaccine. And we are not confident yet that we'll receive them in sufficient numbers to ramp up our programme. If supply becomes an increasingly fraught issue, are we going to have to make hard decisions as to who gets the vaccine? Yes, I think we will. Uh, we've decided to prioritise vulnerable patients in long-term care homes and healthcare workers. And I think that, that approach carries general support. But when you get beyond that, there are a huge number of categories of frontline workers in different areas of society who urgently need protection against the virus, particularly when transmission is so high. Some hard decisions may have to be made if supplies run short. Do we want to get the economy up and running again, or do we want to provide protection for the most vulnerable people? They are seriously difficult ethical questions that may arise. They won't arise if we manage to get enough supply, if we manage to get enough vaccines authorised, and um, politicians and others will be hoping that that is the case. Irish Times Health Editor Paul Cullen ending that report by Jonah Sullivan. And it is January the 4th, 2021. So did you make a New Year's resolution? Is there much point in a pandemic? Let's talk now to Dr. Mally Coyne, who is clinical psychologist and adjunct lecturer at NUI Galway. Dr. Coyne, you're very welcome. Will I sound defeatist if I ask you what's the point in making New Year's resolutions at this time, at this awful time? Um, good morning, Audrey. Um, I think it really depends on who you are and whether you find that helpful 
to you to make resolutions. I wouldn't be a huge fan of resolutions every year because I feel like by the end of January, February, people maybe feel like they haven't. The resolutions were maybe a little bit too kind of ambitious and maybe didn't really align with their values that much. So then by February, they're feeling guilty and ashamed that they haven't managed to fulfill them. And I think this year, more than any year, I think the idea of trying to have goals that are very big and maybe quite ambitious in the time that we're living in with another lockdown is um, is a little bit too much for people. And I just, I would focus more on daily kind of healthy goals and one foot in front of the next and, uh, you know, trying to be well on a daily basis. Yeah, daily healthy goals. Like what, um, Mally? Well, they say if you want to look after your well-being, it's about finding balance. And there's you, you, you're looking at a balance between three things. One of them is achievement. So that's, we, you know, we feel good when we've achieved something, accomplished something each day. So including activities that help us to, ha- to feel achievement. It can be going to work, obviously, but it could be doing something at home, completing, even completing an exercise routine, doing something small like paying a bill. But, but you know, th- that's an achievement. And then pleasure would be when we're struggling with anxiety and worry, we can lose touch with things that bring us pleasure. So plan to do activities each day that bring you pleasure, you know, obviously within the limitations of the restrictions but there's still stuff that you can do to bring you pleasure and then closeness and connection which is a really hard one at the moment because obviously we're not allowed to be with people and we are social animals and we really crave closeness and connection and that's what's been so difficult about the last year but it's important to connect with other people as much as you can in a safe way and if you have a balance of those three psychologists would say that that really leads well to good well-being. And I always think, Mally, if possible, it's always maybe a good idea to try and find things in your life that you're grateful for. I, re- I mean, I-, I totally agree with you, Audrey. Um, it actually really boosts, you know, studies have shown that if you practice gratitude on a daily basis, if you even wake up and think of three things that you are grateful for, it could be the smallest thing. It could be, you know, a nice warm cup of tea, a warm bed, you know, your, 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 your kids, uh, you know, your garden, going for a walk, whatever it is, looking outside, you know, rather than looking into your phone the whole time. I think it can really help you to, you know, because we all have this negativity bias in our brains where we think negative sometimes. And it, at the moment, there's a lot of threat around us every time we turn on the news. So we need to counterbalance that with more positive thoughts. And that's not to say that if you're feeling sad or you're having difficulty at the moment, that that's not valid, because it very much is. And yeah. I think, you know, to really um, have compassion for yourself with all of that. And just finally, Dr. Coyne, any words of advice for, for parents with their children at this time? Because obviously Christmas is now coming to an end, the, the 12 days of Christmas, and they were due back at school on Wednesday. That's not happening, may not be happening for a while. How do we talk to them? Well, I think it's really, I mean, I'm a parent myself, so I know this time is really difficult because there's such uncertainty about are they going back next Monday or are they not? But I think trying to be as honest as you can with your kids, obviously in an age-appropriate way. My kids are seven and nine. I've told them that the case numbers have gone up again, and that's why we're in another lockdown, and that's why they're not going to go back to school till next Monday. That's what we know at the moment. 
And I think to be honest, but to, to remind them that they're safe, that we're going to try to keep them as safe as possible. They've been going through this as long as we have. So they, I think, not to shy away from letting them know the reality of why we are not going back to school yet, but also letting them know there's a vaccine in the country on its way and there is hope. And I yeah. just want to extend that out to everybody. There is hope and we will go back to some type of normality. For sure. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, Dr. Mally Coyne, clinical psychologist and adjunct lecturer at NUI Galway. What now for Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder, after a London court ruled yesterday that he cannot be extradited to the United States to face espionage charges? The judge, Vanessa Bereitzer, cited mental health grounds and the risk of suicide, but rejected his claims that he was the victim of a political prosecution that endangered press freedom. The editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks is Kristen Hrapson. He was at the Old Bailey for the extradition verdict yesterday. Kristen, good morning. Good morning. Uh, You were there, as was Mr Assange and his partner, Stella Morris. What was the atmosphere like as the judge uh, read her way through that judgment? Well, it was very charged because, I mean, for the 40 minutes that it took her to read the summary of her decision, uh, for 39 minutes, I was absolutely certain that she would rule in the opposite direction because she denied the arguments by Julian's lawyers uh, on almost all points. Uh, and even when it came up to uh, the evidence about his uh, health situation and uh, the prison conditions that he would be facing in the U.S., I was always waiting for the however word uh, and the turnaround, but it didn't come. So it, it came as a total surprise that she did, in the end, uh, just her uh, rule in Julian's favor and, and uh, deny the extradition. And it was a, an emotional moment, especially for Stella Morris, uh, Julian's partner, who was, has suffered immensely and not seen uh, Julian for months. And, and his children, of course, have been denied any 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 meeting with, with, uh, with their, their father for, for a long time. And as regards that that verdict, did you have mixed emotions because all of those arguments uh, around this question of the muzzling of the the press, all those arguments were rejected uh, and she zoned in clearly on the health issue? It was a a mixed emotion and mixed feelings about that verdict. Uh, It... uh, it was the, the right decision, but on the uh, uh, on the wrong points, and uh, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions that have already uh, raised eyebrows. Uh, and uh, I know that yesterday afternoon, uh, immediately one of uh, one of the MPs in Westminster, David Davies, the Tory, uh, uh, requested to uh, uh, a motion or a. Or a uh, was a question in, in Westminster on Monday to get a clarification on some points that were raised in, in the decision, uh, mm. specifically about uh, the uh, the bar uh, from uh, extradition on, on, on for political offences that was removed from uh, the uh, uh, laws in England in 2003. Yeah, he said it, uh, that the, the laws on extradition require fundamental reform. But what now for, for Julian Assange? There's a bail application tomorrow. There's a bail application tomorrow, and, and it would be uh, very illogical for 
to aspirate her not uh, to grant bail, giving the the fact that that in her uh, decision she's basically agreeing that Belmar's prison is 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 sucking the life out of Julian. It's killing him. So uh, she cannot sentence him to uh, further at least eight or nine months in in, in that condition. So I, I I'm very hopeful that she will take the right decision and, and release him to tomorrow afternoon even. And what about further appeals now? Because this is not over. This is not over. The uh, the Americans uh, have uh, indicated that they will apply for an appeal. Uh, we are still hoping that they will uh, reverse that decision and, and decide that enough is enough. Uh, and uh, I, I will hope that uh, many will put up political pressure on, on the U.S. administration, both Which the one? Uh, outgoing and incoming. Both the outgoing uh, and the incoming. Why would Donald yes. Trump pardon Julian Assange? Uh, because it's the right thing to do, and uh, and uh, he is a man of, uh, uh, well, shall I say, surprises. So uh, uh, a pleasant surprise would would be welcomed uh, from uh, the outgoing president. And in terms of making a case to Donald Trump, what would that case be? Well, I mean, Republicans and Democrats are, are, are like have been uh, uh, urging the president to pardon Julian and and, and, uh, and drop the uh, the uh, the the indictment uh, against him. But as we know, but, uh, Pres- it, President Trump uh, quite often operates from from self interest. And will he see uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange as having helped his election? Uh, no, I don't think that will be a, 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 a case in point there. Uh, Donald Trump has been very critical of the deep state, uh, as he calls it, and many others. And uh, it, it's a fact that uh, we know that forces within uh, the CIA have been pushing for this. Uh, Mike Pompeo, when he was uh, heading the CIA in 2017, uh, in his first public speech, he called about the dangers to national security in the U.S. and mentioned al-Qaeda and WikiLeaks and called WikiLeaks a, a hostile non-state intelligence service, which okay. was extraordinary. Yeah, but you and he is be, now Secretary of State. You will be pressuring both administrations, outgoing and incoming. Editor-in-Chief of WikiLeaks, Kristen Rapson, thank you very much. You're welcome back to Morning Ireland and we're turning now to other news, specifically a government initiative to help people buy a home. Under the Affordable Shared Equity Scheme announced in the autumn, the state can give buyers up to 30% of the cost of a property. In return, it will own a stake in the house or apartment. Now, the government says the move will make it possible for more people to buy their own home. But documents released to Sinn Féin under the Freedom of Information Act show that senior government officials warned the scheme would increase the price of property without improving supply. Sinn Féin's housing spokesman Owen O'Brien joins us now on the line. Good morning. Good morning. For many people who want to buy a house, this may well sound like a good idea. They get help from the state and then they pay the money back. Why do you believe it's a mistake? Well, it it doesn't make homes more affordable. Uh, What it does is it gives uh, hardworking people uh, a secondary loan up to €100,000. That'll saddle them with an even greater level of debt. Uh, And crucially, uh, as the officials from the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform warned uh, in the period around the budget, it has the risk of pushing up house prices and that makes the housing crisis worse for, for everybody. Um, What's also significant about this is that the amount of shared equity in the property, uh, let's say, for example, it's €100,000 on a €400,000 home, 
uh, uh, what you owe is not a hundred thousand euros, but, but what you owe is twenty five percent of the market value of the home. So as the value of the home increases in future years, for example, then the amount that you owe increases. Uh, this is based on proposals by two industry lobby groups uh, that were circulating earlier this year, uh, and they in turn are based on a scheme uh, that has been in operation in Britain for a number of years, which has been widely criticised for pushing up house prices, for exposing both buyers and the taxpayer to very significant risk. And crucially, uh, in the UK case, 60% of the funds went to people who didn't need it. Uh, and that's because, of course, there's no income limit uh, on eligibility, something that Darrell O'Brien has included in his scheme. So what this really will do is increase demand for housing uh, and expensive housing at a time when there isn't an adequate supply, when really what government should be focusing on is reducing the cost of delivering homes for work people to buy and rent. The point made by Dara O'Brien is a simple one. He says this will help more people to own a home and he also says it will incentivise the building of affordable homes. Well, it, it, it won't do the second of those. It'll incentivise the building of excessively priced homes. So uh, if I'm a developer after this scheme is introduced, why would I deliver a home for less than 400000 when I know uh, a hard-working uh, couple, for example, who with their dep- and and central bank approved mortgage can only borrow 300,000, they'll now be able to borrow 400,000. So it'll lock in uh, and push up those high prices. But what it will also do is make it much more difficult for the vast majority of struggling first-time buyers to buy because it'll lock in and push up those high prices. So there may be, uh, and this has been the conclusion of the uh, uh, Public Accounts Committee in Westminster uh, from a report they did on their own scheme at the end of last year, it may assist a small number of people, although many of those don't actually need any assistance. But the overall impact on the housing market and therefore the overall impact on struggling first-time buyers is negative. Uh, And if you think about it, this is really going back to the Fianna Fáil of of the bad old Celtic Tiger days, uh, where where their solution to housing affordability is to give people ever greater levels of credit, rather than focus on the real problem, which house prices are too high and they need to be brought down. And the consequence uh, of lumping ever greater levels of debt on working people is that it exposes them to great risk, because if there is a recession in the future, for example, or people get into difficulty with their mortgages, uh, uh, we know where all of that leads to. So this this really is a kind of developer-led policy. Uh, and even Fine Gael, for all of their failures under Rebuilding Ireland in the last four years, never conceived of such a, a, a reckless scheme. Yeah, I'm, and again, I'm sure, I'm sure if we had that, somebody uh, from Fianna Fáil on, yeah, I'm sure if we had somebody from Fianna Fáil on the other line, they would deny that this was developer-led. But just on the on the fundamentals here, the but scheme can, isn't can I, can yet I just, up and I, running. Can I, can I, do you, can I do say, you believe it should be abandoned in its entirety or should it be tweaked, do you think? Well, first of all, it is developer-led. And the reason why I say that is because two property industry lobby groups uh, 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 developed uh, draft proposals in writing earlier this year, and they met with housing spokespeople from all the parties, myself included. Uh, and that proposal, and in both of those documents, uh, they proposed a, a shared equity scheme up to 30% of the value of the home. That is exactly what Darrell O'Brien has introduced. So this was written by the property industry, and there's evidence to prove that. Uh, absolutely, the scheme should, should be scrapped. This is going to push house prices it's going to saddle working families with ever greater levels of debt it is the wrong approach and what we need is government to go back to the drawing board and exactly as the department of public expenditure and reform have said focus on the real issue bringing the price of houses down not saddling working people right. with ever greater levels of debt oh no brent thank you for joining us on the program 
there are over 100 people critically ill in hospitals here this morning because of COVID-19 infection. With over 1,000 people already in hospital because of the virus, around 6,000 people a day testing positive and passing on the virus to at least two people each. Health authorities say they're gravely concerned that hospitals are facing extreme situations in the coming days and weeks. A further 10 deaths were reported last night. Professor Klina Nikialik is a consultant in infectious diseases and internal medicine at St James's Hospital in Dublin. Uh, Professor Nikialik, good morning. Thanks for talking to us today. Good morning. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing at the moment? Um, So we're seeing it, it's kind of similar to wave one, similar to what we were seeing in the spring. So we're seeing people who are relatively young, um, people from their 50s, 60s up, um, previously well, you know, no major health problems coming in, very, very, very uh, short of breath, having a lot of difficulty breathing due to COVID. Um, and they're requiring a lot of oxygen, um, you know, huge volume, 60 litres, for example, a minute, which is a massive amount of oxygen um, to be given to them in order for them to be able to breathe. And sometimes that's not enough and they need to go to ICU. Um, so that's what we're seeing now. And I suppose what we're really worried about in the next couple of weeks is we know there's at least a week's lag time between people getting COVID and their sickest point. So we're very worried about what the next few weeks are going to bring um, in terms of the numbers of very sick people that are going to be coming in. And in terms of all the people who are sick for other reasons that we also still need to look after. Can you describe what being in intensive care because of COVID is like for patients? So being in intensive care is, it's often quite a traumatic experience for people. Um, So when you're, despite the best efforts of everybody who works in intensive care. um, So people who are in intensive care frequently are intubated and ventilated, people with COVID. Um, So that means having a a tube put down your your throat, down your trachea, down your breathing tubes into your lungs and a machine that's pushing the air in and out of your lungs. And it wouldn't really be possible to, to, to cope with that, to have that degree of, you know, something in your throat and controlling your breathing, unless you were very heavily sedated. So a lot of the patients that are in ICU are, you know, essentially like you'd be during an operation. They're they're anaesthetized. Um, and you can be like that for a number of weeks and it has a lot of complications. So being hooked up to a ventilator, being sedated like that, for example, you're very prone to getting other infections because you have a tube going straight down into your lungs. And because of the sedation, because you're not up and moving, your muscle, you lose a huge amount of muscle tone and you can have damage, permanent damage to your muscles and your nerves. Um, so when people come out of ICU, it's it's a really steep road um, and a very long and difficult road for them to, to do in order to rehabilitate and get back to, to where they were. And people often have flashbacks um, similar to PTSD, similar to what people would get from wars, from being in ICU and from being on these machines. It, it's, it's a very invasive um, uh, situation to be in and you can't talk, you can't move, uh, there are lights on, there's noise on. It's, it's pretty traumatic for people. So it's a fantastic last resort when we need it. Um, you know, it's amazing, but it's really not something that you would wish on anybody unless there was no alternative. We were talking to Dr. Catherine Motherway earlier in the week about the, the difficult decisions um, that may have to be made in the coming weeks because of increasing numbers. Have you and your colleagues discussed having to make those types of decisions? Yes. So, I mean, I'm really lucky. I have brilliant colleagues in St. James's um, who, who are fantastic. And one of our ICU lead, Dr. Endo O'Connor, has set up, he's organised as of today, we're going to start doing uh, daily meetings to go through our list of people who have COVID, identify those that we're worried about and try to make those decisions in advance. And there's two reasons that you make a decision not to send somebody 
body to ICU, the decision that we often make is that it's not going to benefit the person. So if they become that sick, somebody who is frail um, or who has multiple um, medical conditions already, who's already not very well at baseline, if they become sick enough to need to go to ICU, it's unlikely to benefit them. It's important to realise that, you know, only about half of people with COVID that go into ICU come out. Um, So it's not a, you know, it's not something that has a 100% success rate. And as I've said, it's very taxing. So you wouldn't be sending in um, somebody who's elderly, frail, who's not going to be able to to cope um, and to come out the other side. So that's the first type of decision that we we have to make. And that's a very difficult decision to make, uh, to know what's the right thing to do. And then what we're worried about now and what we were worried about in wave one is is running out um, of spaces. We, you know, there's baseline of 286 um, ICU places for the whole country. There's more, I think it's up to 350 with surge capacity for COVID. But that's still very little if you think about our population. Um, So we also are worried uh, that we may end up in a decision in which we have to say, well, these two people would benefit, um, but we only have one ventilator and who will get that? And that's a heavy responsibility to take. Of course. I see where hospitals in Belfast say that they can't do urgent cancer operations anymore because yeah. they're, they're so full. Um, what are you having to defer at the moment? So we're having to defer a huge amount of planned surgery. And, you know, that's, it sounds like it's non-urgent, it's non-elective. I, I think that gives the impression that it's something that's not really needed. But we're talking about hugely needed surgeries. Um, for example, knee and hip replacements for people who are immobile with pain, um, valve surgeries, uh cancer surgeries. We haven't had to cancel our urgent cancer surgeries yet, but the reason that we've had to cancel them or we may have to cancel them is you need staff to run those. So we have a lot of staff that have been pulled to, to care for patients with COVID and staff are off sick or contacts of COVID, but also you need those ICU beds. So when somebody comes out of theatre, if they've had a valve surgery or a major operation, they need to be on a ventilator in ICU for a day or two post-op. And if we don't have those ventilators, then we can't do that type of surgery. You were vaccinated on New Year's Eve, I believe. Yes. Uh, How did that make you feel? Oh, I was so happy. I nearly cried um, for many reasons. I mean, it's just brilliant to 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 see the light at the end of the tunnel and to feel, you know, that, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks once the vaccine has kicked in, that I won't need to to have that feeling in the back of my mind that I try to ignore about, uh, you know, is today the day I'm going to get COVID? Um, because despite all our best efforts, you know, nothing, even all the best PPE, all the best things in the world, nothing is 100%. And a lot of the people that I work with have, have got COVID over this year. Um, and then it's so cool. So I do, I used, did a PhD in immunology. So I know how much incredible amount of effort and, you know, dealing you know with failure and all the now, fine yes. details that I've got you know, into you, that. You know how busy your ribosomes are then? Yes, my ribosomes are, oh, it was just so cool. And it's a new type of vaccine. So in my uh, nerdy way, I was very, very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Kleene and my Michali- arm was a bit sore the second day. I was g- delighted that it was doing something in there. Professor Kleene and Kelly, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. Kerry Mountain Rescue had to rescue nine walkers from the Devil's Ladder on the country's highest mountain, Karen Thuhill, yesterday. The Devil's Ladder is a treacherous stretch of the reeks and weather conditions yesterday were nasty. Colm Burke of Kerry Mountain Rescue is on the line. Colm, thank you for joining us. Hi, Mary. Thanks. Anybody who knows Karen Thuhill knows how challenging the Devil's Ladder is, even in the best of summer weather. So what happened yesterday? So yesterday, um, just before one o'clock, the team was tasked to um, assist a walker who had become cragfast up near the top of the Devil's Ladder. So um, the walker in question 
just became stuck um, in in very icy conditions, couldn't move up or down. So uh, while members, team members were um, going to the scene to assist this man, uh, another party of three became stuck in the same area. And as we were lowering the the first two parties, uh, another two parties came over the top of the ladder, uh, trying to descend, but didn't have proper equipment. So we ended up lowering in total about nine nine people down a 100-metre stretch from the top of the ladder. So you had four separate parties out there on the mountain. What were conditions like? So con- weather conditions themselves were were quite favourable in that it was clear um, there was very little cloud around, very little wind, but it was extremely cold. Um, and there has been a prolonged cold spell in the mountains for the, for the last couple of weeks. So anywhere where there's water courses on the mountain, uh, they're now frozen. And actually down as far as the Hags Glen, which is the one of the main trailheads, mm. all the, the ground is frozen all the way in. So even the traditional walking routes or are, are what might be considered easy walking routes up and down Carantool are now quite treacherous because, because of the icy conditions. So they're really only suitable for, for winter mountaineers who have the requisite experience and the appropriate equipment as well. Is COVID presenting challenges as well to your rescuers when you have to go into the mountain? It, it is, of course, and I, I suppose like like every part of society at the moment, unfortunately, COVID is presenting certain challenges. So we, we have to be very careful, and uh, not only of of the virus transmitting from casualties to, to rescue team members, because we, we have to look after our own members as well, but also the, the risk of transmitting from a team member to, to a casualty. Um, we all know how virulent this mm-hmm. this um, virus is. So, you know, we, we have to take um, the precautions, necessary precautions. So we, we need to wear extra PPE while on the hill. Um, we need to attend with the minimum amount of team members so there, there isn't that risk of transmitting to a, a wider number of people. You we, know. we are in a in a lockdown again. We are confined to our 5K. But what is your advice to people if they if they live near uh, hill walking and mountain walking? What is your advice to them about going out this time of year? The equipment they should have and what they should have in their backpack. Yeah. So so the advice is is, is pretty clear. I mean, if if you're going out in wintry conditions, you really should have winter mountaineering experience, and you should have the correct equipment. And, and the knowledge to use it, obviously. So um, extra equipment you'd need to take in winter would be ice sacks and crampons at a minimum, um, extra clothing, um, extra food and water, um, head torch, um, mobile phone with a battery backup as well because your battery can can fade out a lot quicker in mm. cold conditions than, than normal conditions. So so these, along with your, your regular kit, we would strongly advise would need to be in the bag, but most importantly, having the experience to use them. Indeed, There's not much uh, point in having the gear and not being able to yeah, use it. With, with it with, without experience, stay on flat ground, stay away from the hills. Exactly, All exactly. Right. Colm, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Colm Burke there of Kerry Mountain Rescue. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.